You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Friday, March 12th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the latest NPR News headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED Public Radio, including a story on a review that has concluded that the Los Angeles Police Department mishandled the response to protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. After a roundup of regional news and weather, Felton Pruitt talks to Strawberry Music Festival organizers about how plans are shaping up for the festival's future. We end with a commentary from Chaplain Norris Burks about Dr. Seuss and how we awaken to our racial biases. For their support of Community Radio, we'd like to thank The Pizza Joint, offering New York-style pizzas by the slice or pie, cheese or meatball manicotti, and more. Open daily, takeout or curbside pickup for social distancing. Commercial Street, Nevada City, thepizzajointnc.com. And we thank Hospice of the Foothills, Western Nevada County's nonprofit hospice, dedicated to providing compassionate end-of-life support for patients and families since 1979. Hospiceofthefoothills.org. Here are the latest headlines from National Public Radio. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden and top congressional Democrats are taking a victory lap after the passage of nearly $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill this week. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the measures designed to help nurse the economy back to health and deliver direct aid to millions of Americans struggling to make ends meet. In his first White House Rose Garden ceremony since taking office, President Biden once again assured Americans that help is on the way. Think of the millions of people going to sleep at night staring at the ceiling thinking, my God, what am I going to do tomorrow? I've lost my health care, don't have a job, unemployment runs out, I'm behind in my mortgage. What are we going to do? Biden says the next round of stimulus checks for Americans who qualify could start hitting bank accounts by the weekend. The measure also provides additional funding for vaccine distribution that will go toward the president's goal of expanding vaccine eligibility to every adult by May 1st. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Even as more women come forward claiming they were groped or subjected to inappropriate comments by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he is saying he has no intention of stepping down. The New York governor now faces calls he resigned from fellow Democrats, including most of the New York congressional delegation and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. But Cuomo says there are often motivations for allegations being made and there's a need to know the facts in his case. Cuomo's also faced criticism for undercounting how many nursing home residents died of COVID-19 in the state for months. Minneapolis city officials approved a $27 million settlement to the family of George Floyd. From Minnesota Public Radio, Reham Fashir has more. The settlement comes as former police officer Derek Chauvin, charged in the killing of George Floyd, prepares to stand trial. Minneapolis City Council members voted to pay a record $27 million to the Floyd family, who had filed suit against the city and the four former officers involved in Floyd's killing. Here's Council President Lisa Bender. No amount of money can ever address the intense pain or trauma caused by this death to George Floyd's family or to the people of our city. 
Minneapolis has been fundamentally changed by this time of racial reckoning. The settlement includes half a million dollars for the neighborhood where Floyd was killed. For NPR News, Amriham Fashir. More than 5,100 responses have come into a panel that is looking at the idea of placing a permanent memorial in Las Vegas to honor the victims of the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. Officials say ahead of a Sunday deadline, they received responses from Nevada and other states, including California, about where a memorial should be located. 58 people were killed in October of 2017 in the shooting, with at least two others who later died, their deaths blamed on the gunfire. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 293 points. This is NPR. The chair of the House Oversight and Reform Committee is blasting a deal reached between the U.S. Postal Service and Oshkosh Corporation to build as many as 165,000 next-generation delivery vehicles. Democrat Carolyn Maloney, who chairs the committee, calling on the Postal Service to release details of a 10-year contract that could be worth as much as $6 billion. Maloney questioning why the company was chosen to build a mix of gas-powered and electric delivery vehicles rather than another company that would have built an all-electric fleet. The Biden administration is announcing plans to grant temporary protected status to citizens of Myanmar who fear returning home after the February 1st coup. Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, has been racked by violence since then, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Administration officials say they want to ensure that all Burmese nationals feel they can safely speak up for democracy. Returning home now could be dangerous for them. So the U.S. is offering what's known as temporary protected status, allowing them to remain here for 18 months. Officials say this could cover about 1,600 Burmese citizens already in the U.S., including diplomats who have broken ranks with military coup leaders and have spoken out in support of the de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi. The Biden administration has not had any contacts with Suu Kyi since she was detained in the February 1st coup. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Four people in a suburban Detroit lottery club have won a billion-dollar Mega Millions jackpot. They'll share $557 million after taxes. The announcement by lottery officials coming two weeks after the January 22nd drawing. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The L.A. Police Department mishandled the protests and unrest that followed the killing of George Floyd last spring. That's the finding of a detailed and very critical report commissioned by the L.A. City Council. Among the LAPD's shortcomings, a lack of training, poor communication, and minimal coordination that led to a fragmented response to the protests. With more, here's KCRW's Matt Gillum. This review was spearheaded by a group of former police department commanders, led by attorney Gerald Chaliff, who's looked at the LAPD's mishandling of past unrest. They found problems in the response at all levels, from on-the-ground officers to top brass. According to the report, many police only received a couple hours of training on using less lethal munitions, which seriously injured several demonstrators. Planning for mass arrests was minimal and led to people being detained for hours on end, and police higher-ups issued contradictory orders. The report also said so-called shadow teams of undercover officers were sent into the crowds to gather information but had insufficient means of relaying their intel back to authorities. Many of these problems have been called out in the past. Nearly two dozen recommendations for improvements are in the report, including regular audits to ensure the department is complying with settlements. The LAPD is working on its own analysis of the response, and a third review from the LA Police Commission is also in the works. For the California Report, I'm Matt Gillum. 
The federal government is reportedly looking for vacant facilities in California and elsewhere to house migrant children who've crossed the U.S.-Mexico border recently without a parent or guardian. KQD's Farida Javala Romero explains. At the start of the pandemic, President Trump essentially closed down the border for migrants seeking asylum, including an estimated 8,800 unaccompanied children that border authorities expelled in the first six months of the policy. President Biden agreed to allow these kids to seek protection here, and more than 9,000 crossed the border just last month. That has surpassed the space at available shelters. Which is why they're looking to open temporary influx facilities. Attorney Melissa Adamson in San Mateo is counsel in a settlement that governs how federal authorities treat migrant children in their custody. She worries about the conditions for kids at these influx facilities because they don't have to be licensed by the state, like regular shelters do. Whatever influx facility they choose to open, it's really essential that they have safeguards for children and that they have really transparent oversight over the treatment of children. The U.S. Office of Refugee Resettlement houses unaccompanied minors until officials can vet sponsors in the U.S. to care for the kids while they pursue their immigration case. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care. On the web at chcf.org voices. The James Irvine Foundation... Accepting nominations now for the 2022 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. In a court filing, the Biden administration and the American Civil Liberties Union announced this week that they're entering into settlement negotiations to resolve a three-year lawsuit over family separations. For years, advocates and lawyers have been working to reunify children who were separated from their parents or guardians by the Trump administration's hardline zero-tolerance policy. With a story about a father in Honduras from our sister show, The California Report magazine, here's KQED's Michelle Wiley. Hola, buenos días. Estamos aquí ya preparándonos para poder eh, salir. It's 5 a.m. in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, and Dora Malara is already awake. She's getting ready for a long drive, four hours in the pouring rain. Ya tenemos lista la documentación, maletas. She packs light, some important documents, and sandwiches for the road in an overnight bag. Her mission is to locate a father. She has some clues, his name and where he might live. She knows his teenage son was taken away from him at the U.S. border in 2018, and the father was deported without him. Dora, a lawyer in her 40s, is working with Justice in Motion, a U.S. nonprofit. Its goal is to connect with deported parents to see if they've reunited with their kid or if they're still separated, do they know where their kids are? And to let them know they have options. Perhaps they can now return to the U.S. with legal status. She's never sure she'll find the parent she's looking for, but she's hopeful. Pero esperamos encontrarles y bueno, que el camino esté bonito. <laughs> Over WhatsApp, Dora shared videos and photos of her journey, and she's led more than three dozen quests like this. Many are successful. She searched for parents during the pandemic, navigating curfews. She's making this trip after deadly hurricanes have pummeled the area. 
displacing at least 150,000 people. Just two hours into the drive, Dora counts four rock slides. She spots homemade signs, warning about the damage. She's with a colleague, and they maneuver their Ford Escape around deep potholes. During these searches, Dora often relies on the kindness of strangers to point her toward the parent she's looking for. Here's how it works. After she's given a case, Dora starts trying to find ways to contact the parent, online or over the phone. But that can only take her so far. Often, she has to physically travel to their last known address to find out where the parent is. Sometimes they're there. Often they're not. So she asks around, talking to friends and neighbors, anyone who might know where the parent has gone. And getting this information requires building trust in person. That's why she drives for even the slimmest chance of finding this father, despite any dangers. You can hear the rest of Michelle Wiley's story on this week's California Report magazine. Find the podcast for it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's the California Report for this Friday, March 12th, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Remember, you can listen to the California Report podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so check it out. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. And remember, it's daylight saving time this weekend. So watch your clocks. Nearly 30,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been administered to Nevada County residents so far, and the pace is increasing. In recent weeks, local health officials have begun to vaccinate those in the food and agriculture sector, starting with grocery store employees. With three highly effective vaccines available and multiple local partners providing vaccinations, we are steadily moving forward, said Nevada County Public Health Director Jill Blake. Blake added that the county continues to make vaccinations available to people who are 65 and older, health care workers, educators, child care providers, and emergency service workers. Public Health is working with Docomo's Pharmacy to vaccinate frontline grocery store workers. These targeted efforts are part of the county's goal to vaccinate those with a high likelihood of workplace exposure. Public Health has reached out to local grocery stores to offer COVID-19 vaccinations to their employees. Starting Monday, people with certain significant high-risk medical conditions or disabilities will become eligible for vaccines statewide. People ages 16 to 64 can be eligible if they are deemed to be at the very highest risk for serious illness from COVID-19, if they have a severe health condition, including cancer, pregnancy, diabetes, obesity, or heart conditions, or a developmental disability. As always, vaccines are contingent on the county supply at any given time. Today, the state announced changes to its blueprint for a safer economy that were triggered by the increasing number of vaccinations statewide. Despite those changes, Nevada County remains in the purple or widespread tier. According to the Nevada County website, our path to the least restrictive red tier is when our case rate drops below 10 per day per 100,000 people and our positivity rate stays below 8% for two consecutive weeks. 
16 new cases were reported in the county on Thursday, but only three were reported the previous day. On Thursday, the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce announced its 2020 awards for outstanding community service. Because the chamber had to forego its 119th annual installation and awards dinner, usually held at the Miners Foundry, it produced a 20-minute video honoring this year's honorees. According to the chamber, the annual awards honor organizations and individuals who have made significant contributions to the Nevada City community through their time, actions, talents, and dedication. They are, says the chamber, role models for compassion and service. And the winners are. The Elza Kilroy Award went to the Nevada County Relief Fund administered by the Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital Foundation. Historian and author Hank Meals received the Dave Irons Lifetime Achievement Award. The Dr. Leland and Sally Lewis Performing Arts Award went to the Nevada County Arts Council and the Sierra Poetry Festival. John Blinder, president of the board of the Nevada County Arts Council, spoke about the challenges and rewards of putting on the Sierra Poetry Festival in the time of COVID. The Nevada County Narrow Gauge Railroad Museum was awarded the Stan Hall's Architectural Award. And finally, musician and producer Peter Wilson received the Live Music Award. Here, Wilson talks about the moment he learned how friendly this community is to musicians. Well, I am just so honored to be honored in this way. I moved here in 1979. It was November, so that means I've been here uh, 41 years and two months. When I first pulled into town, it was a weekday night, and I had sung for tips down at the kitchen in Auburn. And I walked into the mine shaft, said, hey, is there a place I can sing for tips tonight? And the guy sitting at the bar said, go up to Duffy's Success and tell him Jim said you could play. Jim Morales, who owned Duffy's Success, was drinking at the mine shaft that night. And I played for an hour, I set up my PA, I made $1 in tips, but that was my first gig in town and I've pretty much been here ever since. We have music here. And as a result, there's musicians who've come here just like I did. Key to having a music scene is having people willing to stick out their necks and hire a musician and try and draw a crowd. And it works, and people come here for that. In the regional weather forecast for the weekend, tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low near 40 degrees. Sunny Saturday with a high of 58 degrees and a low of 41. Cooler and cloudier Sunday with a high of 51 degrees and a low of 34. Rain developing Sunday evening, changing to snow overnight into Monday. At this point, Weather Underground is predicting about an inch of snow in the Nevada City Grass Valley area by Monday morning. In Truckee, clear tonight with a low of 13 degrees and light and variable winds. Sunny in Truckee Saturday with a high of 49 degrees and a low of 20. On Sunday in Truckee, mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-40s and lows in the 20s. Snow developing overnight Sunday and continuing through Monday with an expected accumulation of 1 to 3 inches. In Sacramento, clear tonight with a low of 37 degrees. Sunny on Saturday with a high of 67 degrees and a low of 42. Sunday in Sacramento, cloudy with a high of 59 and a low of 38, with rain developing in the late afternoon. The forecast is for a quarter of an inch of rain Sunday in Sacramento clearing to partly cloudy in time for Monday morning.
Next, Felton Pruitt checks in with organizers of the Strawberry Music Festival about plans for the festival's future. We're talking with Jody Barnett and Bix Beeman, the festival manager and general manager for the Strawberry Music Festival. And I got to tell you, it's just wonderful to even hear your voices right now, much less talk to you and find out what's happening with Strawberry. Well, right on, Felton. Thanks for uh, checking in with us. We're glad to say hi and kind of check in and let you know what's going on. Hi, Felton. Thanks. And hello to all of the KVMR listeners and everybody out there in Nevada County. It's definitely great to say hi and share this time with you. The Strawberry Music Festival has been a part of our area for so long. I mean, I know it started back in the early 80s. And uh, here we are in 2021. We were hoping to have a festival last May. And you had an incredible lineup booked with headliners like David Bromberg and Samantha Fish and Delbert McClinton, Sam Bush. And uh, then, of course, COVID came along. And now we're rolling into 2021. And we just want to know where Strawberry stands right now. Well, we're in a good place right now. It's been an up and down year, as I'm sure everybody knows. We've done our best to try to stay safe ourselves and promote safety in the community. And I think we're at a place now where the vaccines are really kicking in. Folks continue to do a good job. I see lots of folks wearing masks and being good for each other. I think we'll make it through this. And it's exciting to think about the possibilities for this summer. I know there's all kinds of uh, people that are wondering what might happen. And when we sat down and looked at what might happen for us for Memorial Day, there were just too many obstacles for us to be able to do a true strawberry music festival. And really, there's no other way to do strawberry. It's got to be done the right way. That is the strawberry way. That would have been the end of May. Looking forward, maybe by the end of the summer or something? Well, sure. We looked at that, and a lot of other festivals are thinking about the same thing. And Strawberry is kind of in a unique situation. When we got ready for this year's festival, we postponed till 2022, and we were able to keep the same lineup. And that is exciting for us. We were really excited for all of the the names that you mentioned and the young artists that we were in contact with. We were so excited to bring Barbaro to Nevada County and, and show them off to the West Coast and As you might know, they've hooked up with a lot of other festivals and they're kind of moving in bigger circles now. And we'd love to keep those people engaged. They're part of our family. We ask them to come and play and we don't want to, you know, switch around and go with an alternate lineup. And that's what it would take. If we were to switch to a different uh, month or a different venue, uh, we'd have to throw all the cards up in the air and, and it wouldn't quite have the same feel. We are invested in all of these performers. We paid them deposits and did not request any of those deposits back. And so... We feel like we're in a partnership with them, and I think that's a healthy strawberry perspective. So you're kind of just going to take a two-year nap and then wake up and it's festival time again? It's a whole new reality. I mean, everything is shaken up, and there's so many unknowns um, coming into this point in time, and, and things are certainly evolving. And I think we do, as Vic said, have a positive outlook for what's coming on the horizon for lots of small events and and lots of different kinds of gatherings and people being able to mingle with their families. And, you know, we certainly don't want to wait two years to see those people that we care about and that we love. But in order for us to preserve the authentic strawberry experience and offer what we offer with confidence and looking forward and knowing that we can do it the right way that we do uh, to be carefree in our actions, to be able to hug and sing and jam and play music and, and have any kind of restrictions on, on the essence of what we do and who we are and why we gather in the first place, just uh, protecting the kids, the elders. And of course it's our civic responsibility to protect the health and safety of our residents, guests and the residents of Nevada County. So 
I mean, so many factors that go into it. And of course, I don't think we could cover them all here, but it's really about preserving that experience and, and making sure that it's strawberry when we get together and that we're able to be ourselves and um, be carefree and recharge our batteries. Like Vic said, the strawberry way. What I'm hearing is that the next strawberry will most likely be the spring of 2022. And would that be at the Nevada County Fairgrounds? Oh, it's absolutely set. We plan to put the festival on spring 2022, and we intend to uh, start selling tickets on November 1st of 2021. Tickets to the spring 2020 festival will be good for spring 2022, 23, 24, and 25 at the Nevada County Fairgrounds. And we couldn't feel better about that uh, looking forward. We've been talking with Bix Beeman and Jody Barnett from the Strawberry Music Festival. We'll see you in spring of 2022. All right. Thanks, Felton. That was Jody Barnett and Bix Beeman of the Strawberry Music Festival talking to Felton Pruitt about the festival's survival despite the obstacles of the past year. You can hear the complete interview on the KVMR website or wherever you get your podcasts. We end today's newscast with a commentary from Chaplain Norris Burks about how our racial biases are formed and how we can take responsibility for them. This is Chaplain Norris Burks coming to you with another commentary about spirituality in everyday life. In the wake of Dr. Seuss Enterprises canceling the first five Seuss books, my wife came to me with a rather racist confession. Apparently, way back in junior high church camp, she participated in singing a song called Fried Rice. Now, I'm pretty convinced she's not a racist, but I should let you be the judge of that. Here are the lyrics. They simply went fried, fried rice, rice, fried rice, rice cheese, and bologna. And, bologna. and, and after the macaroni, we'll have onions, pickles, and pretzels. And then we'll have some more fried rice, fried rice, fried rice. <laughs> Doesn't sound offensive, does it? Well, you'd have to hear the mannerisms the campers gave it because they sang it with different inflections, like fast or slow or like a baby. And wait for it, wait for it. They sang it like in Chinese style. In that version, a few kids stretched out their eyes, and the full choir gave the song a stereotypical accent of an Asian attempting English words. The title became Flied Lice, and then they used their R's and their L's to inject a bigoted impression into the lyrics. Racist, right? Maybe not so much. I'm not using this commentary to call out my wife for bigotry. In fact, her revelations got us both thinking about how our own hidden biases come maybe from past racial impressions. Becky had sung the song in the pervasive culture of the 1960s. But as she matured, she learned of other cultures, and she changed her tune. As a credentialed elementary school teacher, she invited exchange students into our home from Japan, Germany, and France. She even took on a classroom assignment full of new Cambodian immigrants, and she learned all their names within the first day. As a teacher, she stocked her classroom library with storybooks that represented her students. In short, when Becky realized how her racial impressions were short-sighted and damaging, she took responsibility and changed her actions. I guess that's the meaning conveyed in the current expression, woke. It's that aha moment when one realizes that something just isn't quite right and it needs to change. Woke isn't a state of being, but it's a decision we continually make. Now, by all accounts, Dr. Seuss 
or Theodore Seuss Geisel as he's known, was a political radical. He was born in 1904. His books covered ecology and nuclear proliferation and the imprudence of America's isolationist view. But if you do a quick Google search of his images, you're going to see some advertising work he did in the 30s and 40s. Wow, it relied on the heavy use of racial caricatures. So, like all of us, he had some learning to do. And by the mid-70s, the good doctor admitted those cartoons were embarrassing, full of many snap judgments. In 1978, he edited the Chinese character in Mulberry Street by removing the character's pigtail and his yellow coloring. Now, I wish Dr. Seuss had been a quicker learner. But, like my wife, his company showed some responsibility toward truth as they were awakened to that truth. To be clear, I don't see my wife or Seuss as racist. They were a product of their culture, and I respect the fact when faced with the issues, they started to change. It's a principle the Apostle Paul so eloquently expressed in his writing to the church at Corinth when he said, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. In the matter of systemic racism, this commentary doesn't even touch the tip of the proverbial iceberg. There are many conversations yet to be had and many more childish things to be put aside as we continue to awake. I hope you get a chance to visit my website at thechaplain.net or follow me on Twitter at simply Chaplain. The views expressed on this show are those of the speakers only and are not necessarily those of KVMR, our board, staff, volunteers, or contributors. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's the California Report magazine with the story of one woman's journey through rural Central America, sometimes on foot, to find parents who lost their children through the immigration decisions of the Trump administration. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Have a great weekend. See you on Monday at 6 p.m.